Teaching ELL students is a privilege and a joy. Is it easy? No way. But with the right support, you can feel empowered to tackle each day with ease and confidence. I'm your host, Beth Fauche, founder of Inspiring Young Learners. With over 10 years of teaching both nationally and internationally, I know what it takes to ensure that your ELL students have what they need to thrive today, tomorrow, and for life. I'm on a mission to empower you to equip your English language learners. Welcome to Equipping ELLs. Let's get to today's episode. Hey, Mariel, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here today. I'm so excited to be here. Why don't we dive in and you share a little bit about your educational background, your experience, what you're currently doing today, because we have a lot to get into after that. Sure. Yeah. So I got my bachelor's from Bard College, um, where I majored in written arts in Latin American and Iberian studies. Um, And I also have a master's in education from Fitchburg State University um, and also Massachusetts licensure in kindergarten through sixth grade ESL. And I have a decade of teaching experience. I taught in Spain right after college um, at two elementary schools. And that's how I got interested in teaching ESL. And I've taught all grade levels from kindergarten through adult. And I'm currently teaching elementary school, which is sort of where I found my niche and want to stay. Amazing. Yeah, it usually takes one cultural experience abroad to kind of make it like just your eyes open to this whole world and the excitement that comes. So that's awesome. I love yeah, that. I, sure. Iberian studies. I would love to go deeper in that. But we're not, we don't have time for that right now, but another time that is really cool. Awesome. Well, I came across your name from an article as I was doing some research where this is going to be January when this is going to be released, which in most states, well, at least I think 46 of them that are WIDA states, it is access testing time. And the window usually runs from January to March. So as I've been preparing different podcast episodes, I just wanted to do a deeper dive into what are some articles out there? What are people's experience with access? I know um, inside my membership equipping allows, you know, just sharing a lot of the frustrations of our teachers and what they're going through. And so I came across Mm -hmm. your article that was published in the Washington Monthly titled How We Can Help Daniela. And I was instantly intrigued and I read your article and it just, it truly brought me to tears because in my mind came so many of my own students who were like Daniela and so many stories from the teachers that are inside our membership who are just having this frustration of these students who've really been in the system for a long time. And this one test is really keeping them from growing and from just thriving and being incredible superheroes that are bilingual. It's really kind of creating this really negative approach to them in their minds and in the teacher's minds because they know they can succeed. They know they can pass this test, but this test is keeping them in that system. So unfortunately, there's not a lot of articles like yours that I was coming across where it was just a real honest and really well-written article about you know, your experience and then the research that you've done um, around specifically WIDA access testing. So let's start 
there. Let's just start with kind of a, an overview of what this testing is, what this looks like, um, because I know there are some people who might be in states that don't do WIDA testing. I'm sure it's similar to whatever standardized language tests that the school does administer. But there's also, we have international listeners, so they might not have any idea about what standardized testing looks like. So why don't you just start there with a little bit of your research and findings into WIDA access testing? Yeah, sure. Um, but first of all, I'm really glad the article resonated with you. And I was hoping that a lot of teachers would see it and um, feel empowered to start thinking about ways there could be changes. And I had a similar experience with you that once it, it was published in the summer, I did receive a lot of messages from teachers. Like I had the exact same experience. Daniela is just like my students. So Anyway, so to explain a little bit about Access and WIDA, so WIDA is the company that puts out Access, and Access is an annual test for kindergarten through 12th graders in public schools throughout the U.S. in the states and territories. It's been around for about 20 years, but it's gained momentum more and more at first. It was only several states. Um, and due to legislation like No Child Left Behind and more recently ESSA, ESSA, schools are relying on it. And it's in 41 states and territories. The rest use other tests, but all states need to use some sort of standardized test as per ESSA, the, the legislation. WIDA also, in addition to putting out access every year, it also has um, resources for teachers basically delineating levels that students are at between one and six, with one being a total beginner and six on par with their general education peers. And along with those levels, there's a list of what they call can-do descriptors that state what students should be able to do at each level, which is helpful information, but sometimes it's not accurate in terms of like students might test all over the ballpark. And so like I've had students who will get a four one year, but then a two the next year. And it's like, okay, <laughs> where are they? So the way it works is students whose families speak another language at home are um, screened when they enter U.S. schooling, regardless of what year it is, whether anywhere between kindergarten and 12th grade. And so if they're in one of those 41 states that use WIDA, then they would use the WIDA screener to determine whether or not um, they should be receiving ELL services. And then every winter, usually January, they would take the access test. And then that would determine like whether they've made progress and whether they're ready to exit the ELL program in the following school year. So yeah, it does, this process does vary a little bit state to state. States do have discretion, but ESA does strongly encourage states to rely on a standardized test score and at, basically as like the one criterion of whether students are able to be reclassified. Other data like from teachers and administrators is not taken into account, generally speaking. So that's the the general background on access and WIDA. That was awesome. Super helpful explanation of that. And I think, you know, it's just, I mean, there's so many frustration points with this, but <laughs> to me, it just is so shocking that in our education system, we allow for one test to be the, I mean, because like you're saying, there are some, there is some wiggle room here and there, but most 
you know, of the ESA criteria, the legislator is saying that you need to have one test that helps you reclassify students. And then looking at the testing as a whole, it's like they entered the school in August, even if it's someone who's been there, but they had two months off school. Now they're in school and we all know back to school, it takes a long time to get groups set up and to get the, the schedule going. So that's really now we're moving into probably end of September, October, by the time you actually have your groups, you have things set up, you know how to support your students. Then we have winter break. I know some of our members inside of Quibbles, they were starting to test in December now. So it's like, so you maybe have two good months of working with those students. And now we're already testing them to see if they're ready to exit the program. It just, it makes no sense to me of the timing of things. I know New York goes a lot later. They wait, I think, until May, which makes much more sense to me. So it's like that alone mm -hmm. is we're having this one criteria right in the middle of the year. And tell me about your experience as a teacher, because I know this is another huge frustrational piece for our teachers of multilingual learners, where all of a sudden, maybe you're starting to build that momentum. You have your schedule finally set. You're working with your groups. You're pushing in. You're pulling out however your model is. Comes winter break, and now you're being pulled out for a substantial amount of time to run these tests. Give us a little insight into what that whole beast looks like having to do the test and, you know, all of that. Yeah, um, so it's it's hugely time-consuming and it's a logistical nightmare. There's the administrator's manual of all the things you have to keep track of is 90 pages long, so that gives you some idea. The last time that we administered it, it took a full month. Um, the whole month of January, even though we were giving it to multiple groups of students each day. But there's all these rules, like you have, students have to do listening and reading those domains before they can do speaking and writing. So, of course, if students are absent, which they often are in January, everyone yeah. is sick then, um, then they can't keep testing with their peers. And so you have to like test them individually. And of course, there, there's specific like clusters and tiers that can test together and can't test together. So it ends up meaning that they lose a lot of time both with ELL teachers, because that's all we're doing, mm -hmm. and also in their other classes. And we have to constantly email the general education teachers to apologize and let them know, like, yet again, they're going to miss class. And then come up with a good testing location. So that means maybe depending on the school, like the gym is just being taken over for that time. Wow. So it's it's really hard on everyone from, from us as ELL teachers to all the other teachers and, of course, to the students. And it's it's not just that it's costly in terms of time, but it's not cheap in terms of money either. Since I live in Massachusetts, I just looked into what it costs in Massachusetts but um, in 2022, Massachusetts spent more than $3 million to have 101,000 students be tested. So that gives you some idea of the toll that this test takes. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, not even counting the teacher time that you're now removed from your regular lessons and supporting those students. So really for that whole month, your students are only being supported by the homeroom teacher. Yeah, right. So they lose out on a lot of supports yeah. and they're behind in their classes because they're missing their other classes as well. Yeah. So it is a complicated acrobatic work there that you're trying to do to, to make that all work. And I know the students, if they're absent and following up with that, I mean, that is a lot on you. So 
If there's homeroom teachers listening, be very gracious and loving to your ESL teachers during testing months of January and February. And then really a lot of them move into state testing come March. So if we really look at what our education system is doing to our English language learners, it's it's a tragedy. We're really not giving them the support they need. And, and nobody shows their best work by a standardized test. So that brings us into your article about Daniela. And Daniela is a pseudonym for one of your students, but it really is a pseudonym for so many students that we are seeing trapped in the system. So why don't you just give us a quick overview? And for those who are listening, we will post a link to the article in the show notes. So please, I encourage you go read the entire article because it's so, so good. But just give us a brief overview of who the student is and you know what her situation looked like. Okay, yeah. So she's, um, Daniela is a pseudonym. When I was teaching her, she was in seventh grade. She had moved to Boston from El Salvador when she was in kindergarten. And you wouldn't be able to know that she was in ELL if you just like heard her talking to her friends because she's been in the U.S. long enough. She doesn't have an accent. She talks fluently. Mm-hmm. And her scores varied widely on access. So some years it was very low, some years you know, approaching. Yeah, almost passing. passing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's an example of a student who maybe doesn't have a perfect command of all the domains of English. So she's good with speaking and listening, but mm-hmm. less so with reading and writing. And that's due to a communication disability. So it's not due to her needing more ELL time. And she also does see an, a learning specialist for the communication disability but she needs to split her time between the learning specialists and ELL services. Um, And that means that cuts back on other time that she could spend with her peers um, in electives in the general education classroom. And it's a way of making students like her feel like outsiders, even though they've already been in the country for so long, but they're still being told you're deficient in English, you need to stay in this. And just because a student doesn't have a perfect command of all of the domains of English and all the intricacies of English doesn't necessarily mean that ELL is what they need. Yeah. And access fails to take into account these learning differences. So students like her are misclassified often due to due to access. Yeah. And that's where anybody who's worked with ELs for long enough has probably had that issue arise. I know I I was in many meetings, you know, RTI meetings and things like that, where it was always that, is this a language? Is there something else going on here? Is this a learning disability? I mean, there's so many different facets that we have to take into play when we look at a student and the support they need. Um, And more often than not, though, I mean, as a teacher, you kind of just have in your gut, like I'm giving them all the language support they need, and they're still really struggling. And I don't think it's a language issue. But a lot of times it's met with, it's a language issue. Issue. And so they continue on getting the support that they're really growing and they're doing great, especially these students who've been in the country for multiple years. Their English is, you know, fluent. They they speak the same as their peers. And so then to find out that actually there is another underlying issue, but now we're splitting our time. And now because you can't pass this test, this one test, and we all know one day you could have a bad day that impacts those scores of your test, because like you're saying, Last year, your students might have been close to passing and all right, we're almost there on maybe let's just, you know, boost up that speaking. Let's practice the speaking. That's what's keeping them from doing it. 
And then the following year, their scores could be completely different. And so it's very hard as a teacher to really know how to support those students when their numbers are all over the place. And the test seems to be getting harder year after year without really giving the teachers the support they need to boost those students. And so I know a lot of teachers listening are are picturing those students, that Daniela that they have that has that additional struggle of some sort. Um, Maybe it's identified, maybe it's not, but now they're being split in multiple different ways or just those students who, you know, have been in the country for a long time. They've been in this program since kindergarten, first grade. They're now in seventh, eighth grade, and they're just tired of it. They know that they're not going to pass that test. I know many students who I've talked to that just have that attitude of, and, and you can't blame them. I mean, if they take that test year after year and know like, I, I'm not going to be able to pass it. What are we sending? What message are we sending to our students? So I would love for you to share a little bit more about that misclassification that happens a lot. Um, I know that that's a question that a lot of our teachers face. Is this something that could be just a learning disability? Is this language? Can you elaborate on that at all of how you have seen that process work where they've been able to identify or any advice for our listeners of, you know, how can they really advocate for those students to help get the further support they need and maybe lessen the ELL support if that is um, something that they're seeing is working well and they don't need as much ELL support? I think generally like a red flag to look out for is if it's been maybe over four or five years and the student also does have a learning disability or the teacher suspects that something else could be interfering so they're able to do testing and in fact they do have a learning disability and it's been four or five years and they haven't passed access maybe it's time to move on and they don't need ELL services anymore. I know in some districts it's okay even if they haven't passed access to not get all those ELL services, but it depends. Some schools really hold tightly to that access score and like require the services every year. Mm-hmm. Um, so teachers should definitely be on the lookout for that and advocate for those students to be able to move on if they think they're ready. The more that teachers stand up and advocate for things like this, the more there's going to be like a question mark about this this test and its Mm -hmm. validity teachers need to bring this forth and not just endlessly be okay with okay the student again and again is going to have to take this test because it's demoralizing for students and we don't want them to be caught in this stigmatizing situation and also miss out on classes that they could be that they could benefit from more due to needing to be in ESL Absolutely. And that's what I think, you know, that's why I loved coming across your article. And I really hope that more and more people will bring up this topic and really ask WIDA and ask the states and ask the districts and the schools, you know, what can we do to help our students really grow, become bilingual, help them soar and not keep them in this place where they feel like all that matters is the test score. And that's a lot of the sentiment of many of our students, especially as they get older. So you put in a quote from an Education Week article that said, the expectations for English language learners are actually more arduous than what many monolingual students can actually produce. Tons of monolingual students would be classified as ELLs overnight if access were administered to all. And 
I've seen this myself. I've seen this in many groups. And each year, you know, I was reading some articles from from WIDA themselves, and they were just saying, oh, our, we're raising the rigor. The test is getting harder. And it's just, you think, would a monolingual student really be able to to complete this successfully? And I think I don't think they could. I think many of them, you know, I didn't even know as a first language English speaker what all these different verb tenses were subjunctive. And I didn't know we had that in English until I went and learned Spanish. And I realized, oh, we have this in English, but I never, you know, there's so many things that <laughs> the control of the language and the command of the language, many native speakers don't have control over that. They don't have the writing skills that are expected of these second language students to pass this test. And so how do we, how do we bring, you know, raise the flags on this? How do we ask the validity of this test is, are we testing monolingual students to use as a comparison to see how are they doing on this test? Um, Or is raising the rigor really a way to keep more people testing so there's more money in it? I don't know. I'm just asking questions. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you bring up so many great points. And I love the idea of like, I'm not sure if WIDA does do a control with monolingual speakers, but that would be a great idea to really see, like, is this reasonable? Are these expectations reasonable for ELLs? Um, Especially because these tests are, like, access is testing students across all the grade level subjects. So they're being tested in English of science, English of math, English of social studies. And meanwhile, they're also learning all the very basics of English language itself, like, from decoding to the correct word order and sentences and like the way emphasis changes meaning and colloquial phrases and all of that. And they're still supposed to be at grade level accessing English across grade level. So some examples of things that they might need to do on the test would be like in fourth grade, maybe writing a compare and contrast essay or in second grade, Um, describing the steps in a science experiment. And and those are things that are very important, but it's important to be aware of, could their peers also do that? Because otherwise it's really unfair. And their peers never started out in ELL to begin with, so they don't have this hurdle that they have to get past. Mm -hmm. Um, So no one's seeing like, oh, do they know, know this too? I mean, they're tested in other ways, um, but ELL students are also tested in those ways too. So ELLs have an additional hurdle that they need to get past. That was a great explanation of just how much we're putting on these students. I mean, it's a lot. And I don't think that the benefit is really there for them to feel like they're they're not making it. I'm only important if I know English. I mean, that's the... That's the paradigm shift we need to really focus on is how do we create schools and communities that are assets-based approach, that we are really creating and cultivating environments where they feel so welcomed and accepted and excited. And they're, you know, picking up English as they continue to keep their native language, because that's the future. We want bilingual, trilingual students to be part of our country, our world. And, you know, it's just... That's what we should be aiming for. Not I. I can't. I cannot think of any other country where you would go and be plopped in, and then have so many factors on your, you know, your how well you do, and having so many tests. Even if you, I mean, get, correct me if I'm wrong. If you're a newcomer and you enter before testing begins, you have to test. Correct. 
I think there's like a certain cutoff date, but it's pretty mm-hmm. close to when testing begins. So it's like, imagine coming to a new country and all of a sudden you have to sit down and take yeah. this test. It is crazy. And I I just, I guess that's where I, I want to dive deeper on this topic because I feel like there's a disconnect of what WIDA says is best practices for English language learners. And then what this test does them seems to be the complete opposite of what we know is best practice. So it's just, it's something that I can't seem to (laughs) let go. And I think that's the purpose. I think we as educators of multilingual learners need to keep standing up and saying, you know, this is not right. And I love that doing writing an article, doing a podcast, whatever it looks like for those who are listening, let's advocate for these students. So let's end on that. What can we do to keep advocating for our students, especially those stuck in the system like Daniela, those who've been in the program for years and just one test is keeping them from really moving on and finding, you know, a new way to approach education and enjoy it and see them soar in different ways. What would you say? Yeah, I think uh, you touched well on writing an article talking on a podcast like this, those are both extremely important. Um, Just in general, getting your voice out there because the more people um, who share their experiences, the more people will understand that this isn't okay. And the people creating access aren't with ELLs on a daily basis, seeing how it actually plays out. So it's really important um, for everyone to speak up about this, whether it's to administrators who can then relay the message on, um, whether it's getting directly in touch with the Department of Education, whatever state you're in. Like I emailed my article to various, even though I only live, you know, I live in Massachusetts, I emailed it to a bunch of different state departments. And also another avenue that you can take not only is to get in touch with the State Department to question the rigidity around the criteria, but also to get in touch with the makers of the test. So when I was writing my article, I talked to the CEO, Tim Bowles, Mm -hmm. and he, he himself has put out literature saying that this test should only be one of many criteria to determine whether students should be ELLs. Um, He didn't intend for the test to be used this way. And he's very friendly and approachable and loves talking about all things WIDA and access related. Um, And his email and phone number are posted online, so you can easily find them. You could share with him improvements that you think could be made to the test. And the more people he hears from, like if we are relying on this test, Mm -hmm. at least it should be a strong test. So there's two avenues. One is like pushing for the test to not be the only criterion in determining placement. The other is also improving the test itself. And in my article, I listed like tons of ways I could see the test being improved to make it much more engaging. Because obviously people do their best when they're engaged. Um, No one does well when a test is boring and the test is incredibly boring. (laughs) Very boring. Um, (laughs) So I I listed a bunch of improvements, but that is not like a comprehensive list because those are just my opinions. And I'm sure tons of other teachers have tons of other ways that it could also be improved. So the more we let WIDA know, like the ways that it's damaging and the ways it could be improved, the better, I think. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I love that you reached out to him and that he responded. I mean, that shows, that's why I don't think that it's their evil and want to destroy the kids. I think they really are passionate for multilingual learners. But I think with the pressures of, you know, having some sort of one size fits all approach to our ELL students, when we know that it's not a one size fits all, that's where we really, like you said, just advocating for even just having that in the school that you're working in, if you can have some teacher observations or, you know, a, another form of checking in and saying, okay, is the student ready to go? Um, even if they're not passing the access testing and knowing your state department and what their standards are, how you go about that, that you can get that. Because it was saying that it with ESSA, even that there is some room where you can maybe apply for, you know, the ability to have your say and your teacher approach or maybe using multiple different ways to um, assess the, the student, not just having the access to test be the only deciding factor. So those are some great options. And I think exactly what you're saying, the more that we can spread the word, get the word out, go right to WIDA, go right to your state department and really just continue to be those advocates that our students need. It really, we can see change in the future, hopefully. So, well, Mariel, thank you so, so much for being on the show today. I, this just honestly makes me even more inspired to keep raising those flags, um, keep finding more ways that we can make a small impact, but we don't know how big that impact can be um, by just doing, you know, small things like this. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the article that you wrote. Like I said, we will post that in the show notes so that you all can read it. And please, if you're listening and this was helpful, share her article, share this podcast. Let's just get these conversations happening around how can we make testing something better for both the students and the teachers, because the way that it's burning teachers out is not okay either. So, all right. Thanks so much for being here. And hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much, Beth. It was wonderful talking to you. And thank you for doing your part and spreading the word. Absolutely. Once the passion begins, it's hard to, to stop it, right? <laughs> yep, exactly. All right. Thanks. Thank you for joining me in today's episode. All links and resources mentioned can be found in the show notes. If you're looking for even more support and done-for-you resources created specifically for the needs of ELLs, head to inspiringyounglearners.com. I'll catch you here next week. Until then, take that next step to keep equipping your ELLs.